This episode of the Curious Life podcast is brought to you by the sneaky treat company Melbourne, decadent sweet treats delivered to your door. Let your friends, family or clients know that you're thinking of them with a box of goodies and a personalised note to send along with your gift. TheSneakyTreatCo.com. You know you want to. Hi, and welcome to the Curious Life podcast with Yana Firestone, therapist, mother, and a podcaster with the drive to bring the most interesting people and their stories to you. In this episode, you'll meet Kathleen Lee, a woman who had always felt she was just not quite like everyone else, very likeable, but just missing the mark somewhere. To cope in this world, she created a mask that she could put on based on how everyone else was reacting in certain situations and always got by. She was compelled to create a story that dives into the life of someone living that same life called Sex and Death, available now on SBS On Demand. Kathleen not only wrote the quirky comedy, she juggled directing duties and stars as the lead character. Once the story had been written, Kathleen then had a diagnosis that just made everything make sense. Why she had chosen so many extreme ways to hide herself, well, it was because she was diagnosed with autism. Something that is apparently commonly missed in girls, you'll find out how she found out when Yana and Kathleen talk openly and honestly about what it is to be diagnosed as an adult and what comfort Kathleen found once diagnosed. It's a great chat and you'll find yourself finding out a lot of things you may not have realised about what it's like to live your life amazingly on the spectrum. You'll meet the wonderful Kathleen Lee next on the Curious Life podcast. The reason that we got in touch with each other today is because of a web series that's going to be aired on SBS. It'll be available on SBS On Demand called Sex and Death, which is a creation of yours, Kathleen. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the series. Actually, I wrote it originally as a feature and I was working on it for years and it just seemed like it would be impossible for me to make it. I've never made a feature before. I've just made a few short films. And so I decided to turn it into a web series. So I cut it up into six episodes. I was writing it for years and years. And then eventually I teamed up with Tobias Willis, who runs the production studio Cool in Melbourne, which is cool, but it's spelt K-E-W-L, which is how cool people pronounce the word cool. (laughs) Love it. He basically organized everything and then we just shot it. Then I spent about a year editing it and then we got some funding to complete it from Screen Australia and then yeah we it it came out on YouTube at the start of this year right when the pandemic hit which was weird timing and then we sent it to SBS and they picked it up which is really really exciting for us it's kind of the biggest thing that's ever happened well for me yeah for me definitely yeah yeah it's amazing it's going to get in front of the whole country and lots of other people. And I guess one of the things that's really interesting about the series is that it follows the main character, Charlie, who is a neurodiverse character. And for people that don't know what that means, when we're talking about neurodiverse people, we're usually talking about people who have a diagnosis of autism, autism spectrum disorder. 
And the most curious thing about this is that there's a little bit of you in this character, isn't there? Well, the character is definitely just completely me. But she's she doesn't have all my faults, I suppose, which is what's nice about writing a character based on yourself. You can remove the things you don't like and present, you know, quite a quite a likable character. Not that I'm not likable, I'm pretty likable. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say you're pretty <laughs> likable so far, so well, thank you. What was that like for you then, writing a semi-autobiographical character? What was the idea behind sharing some of your experiences with the world? Well, it was confronting because I don't know if you know this, but when I wrote the script, I didn't know that I was autistic, which is quite common for a lot of autistic women. They tend to not get diagnosed until later in life because not a lot is known about how autism can present in women. More is known about how it presents in men. And for a long time, they didn't even think women, they were autistic women, which there are obviously are lots of us. Um, but we're just starting to sort of come out of the woodwork now. So when I wrote it, I didn't know I was autistic. And I have always struggled all my life to know how to be myself. And and I, I've never known why, but I've just always found it so hard to know how to be authentic and communicate with other people at the same time. Because to me, communicating in a neurotypical way is really, really difficult. And so in order to, com to communicate in a way that is, from my experience, socially acceptable, I had to sort of say things and behave in ways that weren't really authentic to who I am. And so I was writing, I, I wrote a few films and they're all about, and this one especially, is all about someone trying to figure out how to be real, which you'll see if you watch the series because she's doing these acting classes where her, her acting, her eccentric acting coach is, is trying to get her to be real and she can't do it. She doesn't know what he means. And in her personal life as well, she's struggling to to be real around her friends. So to get back to the question, it was because I did have that struggle and I was basing a character on myself, it was confronting because obviously I am scared to reveal my authentic self to the world. So writing a character that does have that fear was difficult. I mean, it was easy to show that the bit where she's not being herself but then obviously at the end you want her to start being herself so you get some sort of satisfaction after watching her really obviously suppressing herself so that bit was challenging and it was scary because obviously I'm scared for people to see my authentic self so I'm scared I'm scared of what they'll think of the character when she starts to reveal more of herself but I think what was helpful is that I did get the I did get the diagnosis of autism before we shot the series. So that may that really helped me feel more confident about being more authentic towards the end when she when she starts to be a bit more brave. There's so many points there that I would love to jump into. It's so interesting that once you received the diagnosis that that gave you the courage to to be more authentic in terms of at least what you were putting on paper. But 
What is it, do you think, about having the diagnosis that made you feel more confident? Well, I suppose before I had the diagnosis, I always felt since I was a little kid that there was something wrong with me because I had these, I just honestly, that was the feeling I had that I could, I just knew that I was different from everyone else. And I knew that I absolutely had to hide it. And that was so important. And I guess I had a a sense of shame about that difference. I, it honestly never occurred to me that anyone else would be the same as me. It just felt, it, it really felt like something had gone wrong when I was born. And so getting the diagnosis was like a, a really big thing for me because it, it, it was like a validation of, of that side of myself and it, and it and allowed me to not feel ashamed of it anymore. And I mean, it's hard to explain exactly what it is, but I could give examples of how it is expressed, I suppose, and what I was suppressing. But, but just that feeling that there isn't something wrong with me and there's actually lots of people that uh, feel the same and I suppose that gave me permission to explore that and start expressing it even though it was it's still very scary but around the right people if I feel really safe then I I can explore that side of myself more and and I don't feel ashamed about it (laughs) anymore (laughs) because now I know what it is you know yeah yeah well I'm so glad you don't feel ashamed because as you say (laughs) There's nothing wrong with you. It's just how your brain operates and everyone's brain works differently. And Mm. you talk about that shame that you felt as a child and thinking that it was something that you had to hide. Do you have memories of being at school and either the kids or teachers just not getting you? Is that where that shame was coming from? Yes, that that did happen a few times, but... I think the thing with me and what I'm trying to explore in the series, even though I didn't know I was autistic when I made the series, is that I, and I think a lot of girls do this and it's why they don't get diagnosed, is that I didn't let anyone see my differences. And that's why a lot of girls get overlooked because they don't seem different. They hide it and they are good at mimicking neurotypical people and the ways they talk. So I, from a very young age, found a very comfortable and safe place, which was surrounding myself with really extroverted people that would do all the talking and kind of be a guide for me and wouldn't really notice if I didn't talk that much. And in the series, the the main character, all her friends and the people she surrounds herself with are very extroverted and kind of self-involved they're good generous people but they're easily distracted with themselves and she encourages them to just only think about themselves so that she can hide in their shadow kind of thing and that's a very safe comfortable place for her and that's kind of what I did most of my childhood I was very shy I just and I was very very nice so no, no one was really that mean to me and I just didn't really assert myself until I felt it was very, very safe. And then I did it within the bounds of what I had perceived was acceptable. As good as that sounds in terms of serving the purpose for you as a child, because as a kid, we all just want to blend in, don't we? We don't want to stand out and we don't want to be different. 
I can imagine that that would have been comforting to know that you could sort of pass in that sense. But it also sounds like it would take a lot of energy, a lot of focus on trying to hide yourself out loud. Yeah, I suppose when I left school, it did. I got very sick the year I left school. I got what I thought was chronic fatigue where I was just exhausted for 10 years. And I know another girl with autism who got diagnosed early 30s and she had the same thing. She really crashed. But I think in school, I it wasn't too exhausting because I I would go hang out with a group of people at lunchtime and I would just be silent the whole time. So I didn't have to worry too much. I would just observe mainly. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating in itself to me that your body became so fatigued after all of those years of sort of just keeping it together, I guess. Mm. Maybe it was hard work and that's why I crashed. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. But I guess, you know, even if it's just on some subconscious level that you're aware that there's something else going on for you and you're not addressing it, but you were a child, it wasn't your place to be trying to figure it out. This is really interesting because, you know, for people that work with kids, we always talk about how early diagnosis and early intervention is really important, but we think about it in terms of the behaviour management or teaching social skills, that kind of thing for kids that are more low functioning on the spectrum. But you don't think about kids like you who were generally pretty much just like everyone else, just feeling different and feeling like there was something that you had to hide. And perhaps if you'd known earlier on, that might have been helpful for you to understand why you were thinking or feeling different to other people. Yes. And I think I do feel sad that I didn't know earlier because I think my whole 20s, I was so sick, you know, and I could never figure out why. Now I know absolutely why I was just constantly putting myself in situations that were exhausting for me, like social situations and going to loud parties and music festivals and constantly having sensory overloads, but not knowing that's what they were. That's so interesting. Yeah, it is weird. It's it's weird that it, it was very strange because I, I was constantly getting really sick and having these, what felt kind of like a panic attack, but I knew it wasn't a panic attack. I just didn't know what they were. These just like dark, intense experiences, overwhelming experiences and just having no idea what was causing them. And then finding out that it was light and sound and too many people and yeah. And at music festivals, all of that all at once. <laughs> I know. I kept going to them, even though every single time I've been to a music festival, within a few hours, I have to run off into the bush and crawl into a ball and, and cry. <laughs> oh, <no>. oh, <laughs> but I kept going because I, I was like, I like music and I like people. Like, surely <laughs> I like this. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do now about music festivals? How do you get your music? I mean, there have been none this year, so I haven't had to, to worry about it. But I did go I did go to one last year and I this after I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed two years ago. Yeah, two years ago. And so I did go to one last year and I was very nervous and I had a meltdown within half an hour of arriving. But I the difference was that in the past I would I would be like, Oh guys, I'm just gonna go for a walk <laughs> and then I'd go for a walk and fully meltdown in the bush but this time I was there with my boyfriend and I was like 
I was like, I think I'm having a meltdown. I'm just going to go to the tent. And he knows that when I'm having a meltdown, he just like keeps everyone away. And so I just went to the tent and had a little meltdown. And then I played solitaire in the tent all night. (laughs) (laughs) And then the next day I was kind of okay, you know. Wow. Good on you though. You found ways around it and you can name what it is that's going on for you and you've got strategies now to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's made a big difference, you know, because if people know, I've briefed all my coworkers and stuff. So if they see me having one, they know what to do. So I feel a lot safer and I don't have to hide it anymore, which is very, very hard to do when you've when you're having a sensory overload because you can't really control it it just comes you just got to try your hardest to be alone when it hits see I just think this is something that's not talked about enough for the longest time we've been hearing about the experience of ASD for young people and what it's like for kids and how to support kids. And I feel like it's only in the last couple of years that we've started to look at what the experience is for adults because all these kids grow up and become adults in the world and then we don't know what happens beyond the school years. And that documentary, Love on the Spectrum, I think had a lot to do with opening people's eyes to the world of the spectrum and Mm. that people can be all kinds of wonderful, yearning human beings with the same needs as everybody else and that we don't talk about it. So we hear about kids having meltdowns. We don't hear about adults having meltdowns and how a functioning, working person manages that. So important that you're sharing your experiences like this. There's so much that we can all learn from it. Yeah, I also feel... I mean, I haven't done this in Sex and Death because I wrote it when I was still mostly hiding everything. But I'm writing another show now that is about me being diagnosed and I'm going to portray lots of sensory overloads in it. And also another thing I really want to explore, which is one of the main reasons I think why I always felt like I had to hide, is stimming. I don't know if you know much about stimming. Mm. Yeah, I've seen it in the work that I do working with with kids in a school. For people listening, what's your experience of stimming? Mine's kind of, I've talked to a few autistic people about it and a few of them have a similar relationship with it. But stimming for me, like there's, it's twofold. There's stimming that you do when you are overwhelmed and it helps calm you down and it helps you process information better. So that would be I guess the classic one would be like rocking backwards and forwards or like playing with your fingers or like tapping, that kind of thing. But I also have this other stim, which even now, you know, I I feel a bit shy to talk about because it's confronting, I suppose. It's not confronting to me anymore because I'm used to it, but I only ever do it in front of my partner or I have an autistic friend that I do it in front of but it's it's very vulnerable. <laughs> but I make these I make these noises and movements when I'm happy and it's a way of me expressing emotions. And I've seen a lot of autistic people do it. And I think it's kind of like a a, a weird language or something and it's 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 a way of expressing joy and that's something I'm going to explore in my show. But I'm going to do it in a way where it's where you at the start you don't know the characters autistic so you 
you're not confronted by it when it comes because it, it's all going to unfold. So it, like the most neurotypical person could watch it and relate to the character. And by the time she's grunting and rolling around on the ground, <laughs> they'll, they'll be ready to, to accept that and enjoy that, hopefully, if I can pull yeah. it off. <laughs> well, I love the concept. It sounds like definitely right up my alley. I'd be watching that as quickly as it gets released. It's fascinating because, as you say as well, so often girls get missed in the diagnosis phases in the early years. Mm. I just wonder how many people there must be wandering around, feeling like there's something a little bit unusual about them and missing the opportunity to understand who they are and why they do these things and so I think it's making a show like especially this new one that you're creating is just going to be so important for so many people not just for education for neurotypical people but for the people that maybe are still in the dark about what's going on for them and that's something that yeah I just think is is incredible I'm so glad you're doing it yeah I think that about that as well I I sort of think if I'd seen a show with a, a girl that was autistic earlier on, I might have I might have realized. I think I would have because I always, you know, I always wondered why I was different, and I think I would have seen it. But I mean, the only autistic characters you ever see are kind of like Rain Man. They're like, especially when I was a kid, these savants. And I mean, I'm not a savant, <laughs> and. Yeah, so so I I just yeah I I do think it will it will definitely if a lot of people see it I think a lot of people will realize they're autistic. I mean, even <laughs> since I've been diagnosed, I have like I talked about my I have a female friend who had we both had the same experience of being fatigued. So we'd talked over the years why about our our fatigue and what it was. After I got diagnosed, I was like, oh, maybe, I mean, could yours be autism as well? And it turned out it was. Um, And then I have another friend as well who realized he was autistic too. And at the time, it sort of felt a bit weird. It was like, why do I have? But I think it's because over the years, I've slowly like gravitated towards other neurodiverse people. And so it, it ended up making a lot of sense that these two people I knew also were autistic. Next on the Curious Life podcast, you'll hear how a family member's watchful eye over the years and a special assignment helped Kathleen unmask and have her diagnosis of autism set her free. Maybe people will be wondering as well, if you're only able to get the diagnosis two years ago, what was it that actually prompted you to check it out and what path did you take to get that diagnosis? Since being diagnosed, I've realized that quite a few people in my family have autism. I think that's kind of common for it to be, for there to be a few people in the family. So my uncle, his son got diagnosed with autism at a young age, I think. And when he got diagnosed, my uncle sort of realized that my dad, his brother, was probably autistic. And so I think he just became fascinated with it. And so I think since I was a little kid, I, I, I don't, didn't see him that much as a kid, but I think since I was a little kid, he was just 
on the lookout for more family members, like examining all the family members for signs. He never talked. He never talked to me about this until I was twenty-seven, I think. And then, weirdly, at the age of twenty-seven, he asked me to to do some research for him. He's a writer, and he was like, "I need you. Do you want a job researching? I want you to find out if Jane Austen was autistic." And at the time, I I thought autism was this sort of I had a very stereotypical idea of what an autistic person was, and so I was like, "I don't think so," because I love Jane Austen and. My idea of autism at the time was that it's someone that isn't interested in people and doesn't understand people. And for me, Jane Austen understands people so well. And that's why her books are so good. And that's why I love them, because I am fascinated by people and have like spent my life studying them. So I was pretty much like, no, but I did the project. And then, and then about a year later, I, I did the project and I concluded, no, she doesn't have autism based on the reading I did about autism. And then I realized a year later, he brought it up again. And I realized he was trying to get me to realize that I was autistic because wow. he sort of <laughs> noticed some things talking to me, little things like I don't respond with my face always when people are talking to me. And sometimes I don't respond at all because I don't think it's necessary. And I don't see the point in acknowledging that I've heard what they said. I just assume they know that stuff like that. So. <laughs> That was a very long-winded answer, but he eventually suggested it to me and I did more reading and I was still like, no, I don't relate to this. Like all the articles were about you prefer objects to people and I was like, no, I don't. I, I love people. And then eventually I started reading some articles that were about girls on the spectrum and then there was this one article, I remember it really clearly, that just had a list of traits of girls on the spectrum. And it was like reading the most detailed description of myself that I've ever read. And it was especially because I had never, ever related to a character in a book. Like nothing had ever described me before. And that was that feel. I'd always felt like I was different. And then this just listed everything about me that was different and that I'd never seen described anywhere before. And so I, at that moment, I just knew, I was like, oh, that explains. And it explained everything, like all these things that I had no idea were related. It just explained everything. And so I kind of, yeah, knew straight away. It was a very intense experience. And so from there, I sort of, went on a waiting list to get a, a diagnosis, but it, it, was, it was quite expensive getting the diagnosis actually. So I, okay. um, well, I didn't know too much about it. There might be cheaper ways to do it, but it ended up costing, I don't know, $2,000 or something, which for me was a lot. Wow. So I kind of had to wait. I've always been, never had much money. Like I had to sort of wait until I had some work on and then I went through the diagnosis procedure. So it took a couple of years from when I realised to, to getting mm -hmm. the diagnosis. You think about what happens with kids and they go and see a paediatrician and it works through that way. But yeah, I hadn't considered what might happen for adults. I can imagine that reading that list and suddenly having this surge of recognition and identifying with something would have been, as you said, a bit scary and a bit kind of exciting. Was there any part of it for you? Because, you know, some people 
particularly parents of young kids, sometimes they don't want to know and they don't want to get that piece of paper that says that there's something different about their child. Even though, as we discussed before, understanding who you are, we know is the best thing that you can do and the best gift you can give somebody because mm. you can you know who you are and you understand why you relate to people the way that you do or you think the way that you do or whatever. Was there any part of it along the way that had you frightened at all? No, not at all. It, because I, there was no part of me that ever thought I was neurotypical, you know. So I'm in I say neurotypical now, but at the time, I guess I would have thought normal. Like I just knew that I was different. And so having a label that allows other people to understand the way I'm different, because up until then I had no way of explaining it to anyone. So it was just exciting. And there was no, actually there was a part of me was worried that I would, that having that label and fitting into a category, I was like worried that I would I was worried about not being different anymore. I was like, oh, I won't be different anymore. I'll be that now. Because <laughs> I was so identified with just being different to everyone. So, yeah. so it wasn't scary at all. I mean, definitely there were people in my life, like friends and family who were like, don't get a label. People will discriminate against you. You don't want that label. Like even if you are on, I wouldn't get the label. Like, like they're scared that I would be miss out on opportunities because people would discriminate against me if I had that label. But I was so excited to get it because I, one of my favorite things to do, and I think my special interest is people, which I think is one of the reasons why it was so hard for me to get, realize I was autistic, but I've spent my life categorizing people. I love it. Like figuring out who's a certain kind of personality trait. And I love categorizing people, but I just could never categorize myself. There was just no category for me. And wow. so finding my category was mm. very, very satisfying and exciting. And I, yeah, I, I absolutely wanted the label. And since getting the label, it just gives you language to talk about things that you feel and, and share them with other people and it allows other people to understand it to a certain extent your experience. And that's just been so, so exciting because I've, just never been able to talk about it before. Wow, that sounds amazing. I guess it's like what you were saying with the music festivals, you're able to, you have that understanding now about what is going on for you and how to explain it to people. I don't have to be embarrassed about needing to go cry in the bush. I can, I've got a word (laughs) for it now that is legitimate. (laughs) It makes it okay. Yeah. But it's interesting, just off air before we started recording, we were talking briefly about masking the signs of autism and how even recently in doing media, you've had to kind of put that mask back on. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that's like for you. Well, I suppose there's lots of different ways of masking, but for me, what it really is and you have to do it a lot, especially in small talky situations or situations where you've got to talk in a sort of a way that has rules around it, like unspoken rules around it, like like ordering food in a cafe or something like that. And I suppose what it is for me, I think everybody does it to a certain extent. It's, it's just a, quite extreme with me because the way I would prefer to communicate is extremely different or the way that's easy for me to communicate is very different so it would basically be 
say I'm ordering a coffee or say I'm small talking with someone, I won't be sort of, they'll say something to me and the entire conversation, I will be trying to figure out what they're expecting me to say and saying something that's acceptable to them. The reason it's hard is because it takes me a bit longer to process what they've said and why figure out why they've said it and what they're actually trying to say because and one of the reasons for that is that I can't I can't read body language and facial expressions and tone of voice and listen to someone's words at the same time I can only do one at once and I I think the main difference that got explained to me when I was being diagnosed is that neurotypical people can intuitively read a situation or understand what someone's meaning is. They, they just intuitively know. Whereas I analyze the details to get the answer. And so my brain is just working way harder to figure out what's going on in a social situation. And I often I get a, a more accurate read because I am analyzing every detail. But it just takes, it takes a bit longer and it takes a lot of energy. So if someone says something to me, I listen to the words and then I check their face to see if their facial expression has somehow changed the meaning of those words. And then I check their body language and then I recall what the tone of voice was. So if someone's being sarcastic, that's an example of when the tone of voice contradicts the words that they're saying. And so if most of the, like, if, I, if I'm speaking to another autistic person, it's very easy because we just use the words. We don't worry. And if we do use gesture and body language, it's only ever to emphasize the meaning of the words. Do you know what I mean? Whereas, yeah. Whereas, yeah. So it's much easier. I don't have to, I can switch this part of my brain off. I don't have to like check their meaning every sentence. Yeah. But speaking in that sort of small talky or like chatty way where you kind of, dance around the meaning and you know <laughs> mm. I have to be constantly analyzing wow all the data to figure out what the person is saying and yeah so it's quite exhausting and then and then I have to respond to them so I have to do all that work to figure out what they're trying to say and then I have to figure out okay what's something that you're allowed to say back to that and then I have to try and say that with use it and put a bit of tone inflection in there so I don't you sound like a robot do you know what I mean I have to do all this stuff and I have to try and do it before there's been an awkward pause which you you know is impossible usually so usually when I'm trying to small talk there's these weird pauses so I do all this work to try and pass Mm -hmm. as being normal and then by the time I say it it's awkward anyway because I've taken too long so (laughs) It, it's just kind of so whenever I have a small talky conversation I just leave feeling kind of sick because I've said all this stuff that mm. I don't think I've just said it to try and make the other person feel comfortable and mm. and I've made them uncomfortable anyway so oh, no. so that's kind of what masking is I suppose it doesn't really tell you what it looks like but that's what's going on in my head when I'm masking I suppose I've been doing like a bunch of press for the for the series and yeah sometimes when I'm doing like I did a radio interview the other day and I was talking about masking and that the show's about masking 
And the entire interview, I was just masking. <laughs> so, but I kind of, I mean, in those situations, you, you kind of have to. I mean, this is good because, I don't know, somehow you've made me feel like I can say whatever I want. But in that situation, it was like live to air. So I knew I had to be concise and I knew I didn't know who the audience was. So I didn't know how to cater my answers. So I just tried to mimic the, the presenter's tone. Mm. And her, her tone, I, she was lovely. But her tone was very, to me, was very neurotypical. So I tried to be all like, oh, hey, oh, like, I don't know how I see neurotypical people. So So it was kind of funny. And then by the end, I felt a bit like a fraud or something. Like I'm talking about masking, but just masking the entire time. But but I mean, that is the thing. It is very hard to, it is very hard to switch off. And I talk about this with my other female autistic I have I have a few male autistic friends and they don't have this problem they don't they they don't mask because they I don't know they I I think I think it's that women are taught from a young age that our role is to make other people feel comfortable and I mean there's other factors too but I think that's the main one for me and and my female autistic friend but we talk about it and we like sometimes we just can't we're so used to masking that sometimes we literally just cannot, our, our bodies won't let us drop it. They're too scared. They're, they're, it's like a protection device. But I mean, again, I do think everybody does it to a certain extent. And I can see it when I'm trying to talk. If I'm trying to talk to a neurotypical person, sometimes I can get them to talk candidly to me and, and openly and just say what they really think. And that's kind of getting them to stop masking. That's so interesting because, yeah, you're right. We, we do all do it to some extent and we match people where they are. If we're with, with a really extroverted person, we're probably going to lift our energy a little bit and if we're talking to someone who's a bit more reserved, we might bring our energy down to match them. And, yeah. Um, and you do, you do sort of, especially when it's with people you don't necessarily know or that you want to impress for some reason, yeah. you know, professionally or personally, you want to say the right thing. Yeah. And so I I think we do all do that to some degree, but yeah, I can understand how exhausting that must be. And it's probably been a bit of a protective mechanism too, because you've spent so much of your life just trying to kind of be like everybody else. And that, that has worked. I mean, okay, you've had some awkward pauses and maybe, maybe you haven't gotten away with it completely at all times, but it's obviously served a purpose. Yeah, so I, if, if, I suppose a good example would be like if you, you will seem, if I don't mask, if I'm sort of in a social situation where everyone's kind of gagging, it's a group situation, if I let drop the mask, I am probably going to miss it if someone says something sarcastically and I'm going to believe it and then everyone's going to be like, oh, like, you got that wrong. And, and then it'll break the flow of the conversation because the person will be like, oh, no, Kathleen, I was just joking. It's kind of embarrassing, oh, yeah. and then everyone else will yeah. be like, "Oh, you get it." So it is a defense yeah. mechanism. I mean, that doesn't matter around my friends now. I don't care. But if I, if I am trying to, yeah, impress people, you want to seem socially savvy. You know, you don't want to be the only person yeah. not getting the gag or like missing it. And yeah. so it's dangerous for me to. <laughs> not <laughs> not anymore. But like in school, that's very yeah. dangerous. What about in those situations in an ordering food or coffee kind of situation? Are there awkward moments 
in those settings when you're actually just trying to like it's a transactional kind of conversation oh yeah all the time very, yeah. very stressful. <laughs> it's, it's unfortunate because I love going to cafes, but I find it like I get so nervous about the social interaction. But I have one friend who is, his brother is autistic. And so he, and I've noticed this, a lot of my friends have turned out to have autistic siblings. And I think, I think people with autistic siblings, they sort of, are, they seem, I mean, you, you can't say this, but they seem a bit autistic or they like, there's something about them that they kind of get me and I get them. And sometimes I wonder if they are autistic. And I, one of those friends is just amazing at cafe talk. And I, I love going to cafes with him and just watch him because he'll say weird stuff and he'll be really bold and he'll say the stuff that I always think I'm not allowed to say. And mm. he'll just say it with such confidence in such a charming way. And he's my role model. That's, that's where I want to be. Like he'll walk in and normally I'll walk into a cafe and, you know how you, if it's a new cafe, you never know if you're going to order at the counter, if you just take a seat. And if you get it wrong, that you can feel that they're annoyed at you. Like if you take a seat and you're meant to wait to be seated, it's this big faux pas. But I, it never occurs to me just to ask. I always feel like that's too awkward and I don't know how to do it in, in a way that seems cool or something. <laughs> Whereas he will just walk, he'll walk up and say, am I allowed to sit down? And he'll just... I mean, that, that didn't encompass how charming he is. He does it in this, he'll say something funny, he'll have them all laughing and he'll get the information he needs and he'll just be really direct and I find that so impressive. That's my goal. That's impressive anyway, just to be able to own whatever you're doing and thinking and saying oh, and yeah. being confident. I guess you can kind of say anything as long as you're confident. Wow, but I, get I don't it. know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it may I, not be well received. I don't know about that advice. I'm not going to do that. You can try that. <laughs> no, I'm probably a bit more like you in the sense that I would overthink it and wait for someone to just mm. take over the situation for me. Yeah. Like, do, we do we wait here or do we go there and hope that the other person will just march ahead and make it happen? <laughs> yes. Well, that's so interesting. As an adult as well, there are just so many situations that you're in independently where there's all of those wheels spinning and trying to figure it out on your own must have been really hard for a really long time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was. But, I mean, I, I still find it hard, but I'm getting much better. I'm hanging out with this friend, examining his techniques. <laughs> well, can you get him to do a workshop and we can all take a little advice from him? Oh, that would be great. He'd be up for it, I reckon. <laughs> In a moment, Kathleen and Yana talk sex and death and how the characters came to be and what Kathleen's hope is for the viewer. You were writing this character in Sex and Death before your diagnosis, as you said, and at the same time was the writing process about just sharing your experience of feeling a little bit different and having like awkward situations happening throughout your life, but not really knowing why, or was there more of a purpose behind why you were sharing your experience? Well, I think, I think the purpose was to, as I think it is with a lot of my films is to share 
my I I just love people and I find them so funny and I love building characters because it's like it's like a puzzle putting to and and building a story for me is like a puzzle it's like putting together all these like bits of information that fit together in certain ways and are funny and I just think the characters they're all based on people I know but like different parts of different people that are fitted together into one person and I just absolutely adore the characters and that that was the purpose really is to 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 create something that I love so much in a way that other people can love it as well Mm. and that's what it was about and in terms of the real inspiration behind the story was that I I met this guy I know now why it was so amazing but I met this guy when I was 23 and I could just talk to him and like I could I just understood him and he understood me and we were both quite different and strange. And I know now he was also autistic. He, he didn't know he was autistic at the time. And now it makes sense to me why we connected so well. But it was the first time in my life that I'd met someone like that. And so that is the actual, one of the main arcs of the, the story is her meeting this like creature. And they just, they kind of spend the, the series sort of, watching these weird <laughs> extroverted neurotypical people around them and just finding them so strange and and <laughs> but doing that together and and that's kind of what our friendship was and our was that we just found everyone so weird and it was so enjoyable to talk to each other about how weird everyone is even though technically we're the weird ones but <laughs> to us everyone else is is weird you know yeah and and yeah, yeah so the purpose was really to show how amazing that experience was meeting someone like that. And then I suppose I wanted her, she, she just the inner, the inner journey of trying to be authentic, which has been so important to me because I honestly have always wanted to connect with people and in an authentic way, but it's so hard for me because I was so scared of actually being authentic. So I I only like authentic people so it felt like hypocritical that I was demanding surrounding myself with people that were really authentic and that's why I liked them because I could they were so easy to read they weren't hard work to understand what they were trying to say but then not being authentic myself so I think that was what I was trying to communicate but it was funny because when I was writing it I obviously hadn't discovered the solution yet myself but I sort of create one in the series that I think is satisfying enough (laughs) (laughs) what a journey to go through that creatively and at the same time be on this journey of self-discovery yourself and I applaud you for putting all of that out there and sharing your experiences with the world because it's just wonderful and I think the more we can talk about how diverse we all are the better it is for everyone we all understand each other better and that's just a wonderful thing yeah (laughs) (laughs) sorry I know it's awkward when people give you compliments but no I just have a thing where I if unless you ask me a question sometimes I just I'll just be like, yes, yeah. <laughs> which is very bad yeah. in interviews, I know. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I mask in all the interviews because it's like someone's just said a sentence. Now I have to say a sentence. What sentence do I say? Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, don't worry. We're all like that. Live recordings are very tough and they're awkward for everyone. Yeah. Or you just but, end up saying stuff that you like, wouldn't, have, yeah. wouldn't have chosen to say that if I'd. <laughs> yeah. So where can people find you to keep in touch with what's going on for you? You can follow me on Instagram, but my Instagram's very silly. But I do post yeah. I do post what I'm up to on there. But I mean it's I have a sort of a bit of a joke. I work as a videographer and my Instagram's a bit of a joke account where I pretend I think videography is really glamorous. And so I post these glamour shots of me with like cheap cameras <laughs> <laughs> pretending that it's glamorous. So my Instagram, which is Kathleen Mary Lee. But the best way would be to follow Cool, because everything I do now is through Cool. And Cool also make a bunch of other short films and docos and that kind of thing. So I would follow Cool, which is K-E-W-L. And they're on, they're across everything. I certainly am going to be following and can't wait to see the new series that you're working on. But for those that want to catch Sex and Death, that will be available on SBS On Demand. And I will also put the link to that in the show notes. But Kathleen, I want to thank you so much for sharing so much of your story today. I could really unpack your whole life all day, but (laughs) that would be totally selfish. So I I think... (laughs) I'm just going to say thank you. And I really, really, as I said, really appreciate you sharing everything. So thanks for being so open. No, thank thank you. It was really good. I very much enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. We would love it if you left us a rating for this episode. And catch up with Yana for more inspiration and info on how to get to the stories that tap into your passion on Instagram and Facebook at The Curious Life Podcast. Oh, 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 oh